Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So one of my New Year's resolutions is to pay a little closer attention to what I eat. As I get older, there are some genetic things I'm up against. So all of a sudden, I'm paying attention to cholesterol or sugar or calories. I've got this app on my phone. I track everything I eat through it for the day. It's actually become a little bit of a game for me as I figure out, oh, if I have this now, I can't have that later. Or if I skip this now, I can live a little later. I, I, I spend all day at different times I'm eating or drinking something, checking my app, which means uh, this past week when it was date night for my wife and I and we went to dinner, uh, well, I should say this, uh, date night with my wife Amy is a chance to connect, right? It's a chance to see each other, hear each other, uh, make sure we're, we're communicating, which means for me, I'm sure none of you are like this, uh, but it, for me, I have to leave my phone in the car. Because if I take my phone into date night, every time it goes off, I want to check it. Uh, just in case uh, there's something going on at work or the Browns have let me down again in some way <laughs> and I need to be up to speed on it. So usually when we go out to eat, I, I don't bring my phone in, but this time I had to because I had to check what I was going to eat. So we're sitting at the table at the restaurant and I'm going through the menu, putting different things in, deciding, nope, can't have that. Maybe could have that, don't really want to eat that, and kind of working my way through the menu all the way to the point at which when I finally settled on what, what I was going to eat, I actually had the waitress go back to the kitchen and ask just how many ounces the piece of meat was so that I could put it correctly into my phone. I looked ridiculous. And I didn't care. I didn't care. Because that app is teaching me something. I've learned something about authority that is really helping me in 2024. And it's that thing that I'm learning through tracking my meals on my phone that I want to share with you this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, would you go ahead and take it out and open it to Genesis chapter 2. Take out your phone, your tablet. If you're watching online, open that web browser and get there somehow. By the way, if you're new, if, you, if maybe your New Year's resolution was to start coming to church, so glad that you're here. You may not have brought a Bible, and that's okay. And if you didn't, I do want to let you know that they're in the pew in front of you or in the back of East Hall. And I actually preach from that Bible so that you can follow along. So I'll tell you that today's reading is on page two. So you don't have to know where Genesis is. You just have to know where two comes in the order of numbers. And you can find your way there. I hope you will join us. Thanks for being here. But as you're getting to Genesis 2, I want to remind you that the theme of this series, and in fact the theme of the year for us as a church, is that we're praying that 2024 will be a year of listening. A year of listening. We know that it's going to be a noisy year. It already is. It's an election year which means a lot of people are going to be clamoring for our attention. A lot of people are going to be telling us that we need to listen to them, that they know what's right, that they know what's best, that they know what we should and shouldn't do, should and shouldn't believe. What we're hoping to do as a church is to cut through all of that 
and instead to find and listen to the voice of God, individually and collectively. What does he have for us? What does he want for us? What does he tell us is best? And so each week in January, we're looking at what we should expect when we listen to God. And this week, we'll be talking about authority. And I have a three-point outline we're going to use to guide our time together. So if you're a note taker, you can write these down. Otherwise, just kind of have them in your head to follow along. Three points, very simple. They go like this. I want to talk about the reality of God's authority, the rhythm of God's authority, and the resume of God's authority. Okay, the reality the rhythm, and the resume. All right, let's start with the first one, the reality. Right off the bat, I want you to see that this is the very beginning of the biblical story. We're a chapter and a half in. It's the front end of the story. And the Bible begins with this big verse, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so I'll borrow that and say, I want you to see that in the beginning, there was authority, Right in the beginning of the biblical story, you see that God is speaking with authority. That in the Garden of Eden, there aren't a lot of things. There's not sin and sickness and disease and conflict and crisis and brokenness, but there is authority. In the beginning, God had a rule, and that rule was don't eat from this tree or you're going to die. In the beginning, there was authority. Now, this is really instructive to us. Because it means that authority is part of who God is. And that the authority of God is actually part of what we need when we relate to God. The reason why I'm saying that is because I think if we're not careful, we might fall into the trap of thinking that God's authority is really just a reaction to the brokenness of our world. Like, for example, when I am at home in my living room, maybe watching something on TV, and I can tell my two smallest kids are playing behind me. And I don't really care what they're doing. They're playing, and I'm, I'm hanging out watching TV until I can hear conflict in the background, right? Some fighting. And, and usually I don't get up at that point. I wait till there's some crying, you know? Sometimes you got to let them fight it out a little bit. See if they can work it out. And then when I hear crying, I get up and I I go to where the kids are and I'm bringing authority. But I'm only bringing it because there's conflict, because there's brokenness. My authority in that moment is a reaction to what's going on in the room. And so if we're not careful, we can conceptualize God like that. That really the only time God brings authority, the only time God says yes or no, stop or go, is because we have messed up. And so we might imagine that in the beginning, where there was no messing up, there was no conflict, there was no fighting, there was no crisis, that God wouldn't have authority. But actually, the opposite is true. There isn't any sin, there isn't any conflict, there isn't any any reason necessarily to speak with authority, except for this, God is authority. He's, He's more than that, but he's not less than that. In the beginning, there was authority. Now, this is instructive for a couple of reasons. One is, I want you to see that if this is true, that in the beginning, before there was anything wrong with the world, there was authority. If it's true that Adam and Eve, even though they had just been created and there was nothing wrong with them, still had a relationship with God that, was, that included authority, then that means that we might imagine for our own lives that any actual relationship with God will involve his authority. It's inescapable. 
It's unavoidable. A relationship with God will be more, but not less than a relationship of authority. And I say that because in our culture, it is very popular to conceptualize a version of God that fits you. And what I often find when I engage people who have created that version, whether they realize it or not, that the one thing missing in their relationship with God is contradiction or challenge. God brings affirmation. He brings encouragement. He may get involved when you need him. But, but most people don't have a category for a God who actually says no when they want a yes or yes when they want a no. They, they don't have a category for God saying this is right and this is wrong. They don't have a category for a God of authority. But in the beginning, not as a reaction, not only because things were broken, in the beginning, God came with authority. And if you desire in 2024 to have an actual relationship with the actual God, you can be certain it will involve authority. Now, I, I know a pushback to that might be, well, if that's true, I'll just do away with God. Now, who wants that? So if, if you're telling me that to be religious, to have some kind of connection to God means that I have to get authority, well, then I'll reject that. In, in place of God, I'll just be free. But I want you to understand something. Pastor Joe's going to get into this next week, and I don't, I don't want to steal his thunder. But the choice is not between God and freedom. In Genesis chapter 3, when the snake shows up and he convinces Adam and Eve to disobey God, he says to them, you're not really going to die if you eat from this tree. God just said that because he doesn't want you to be like him. He knows that's what's really going to happen if you eat from this tree. In other words, the snake shows up and he says, don't listen to God, reject God's authority, but instead listen to me. The snake isn't offering them freedom. He's offering them a God substitute. He's offering them a competing voice, a different guiding voice to listen to. Here's the reality. None of us are free. All of us go looking for someone or something to give voice. We, we look for a political pundit, a YouTuber, Instagram, social media, our work, the market, our bank. Someone, something is guiding us. Something is telling us what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's Wrong. The choice is not between God and freedom. The choice is between God and something else. Do we want a relationship with God and his authority, or do we want to replace God with something different? And that begs the question, doesn't it? Well, then why would I listen to God? If I'm looking for an authority, why would God's voice be the one I listen to? And that actually leads me to my second point, which is I want to show you the rhythm of God's authority. Here's why you should listen to God instead of someone else. Here's why God's authority is good for you. The first thing I want you to notice is the context of God's authority. The context of God's authority. Meaning, th this command comes halfway through chapter 2 of Genesis. Not a lot has happened, but some things have happened. You have to know what's taken place in the chapter and a half before the command, before you know how to understand the command itself. Here's what you're going to find were you to read chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. God created a universe. And he did it as a display of power more than personality. What I mean by that is he would say, let there be light, and there was light. 
There's not a lot of window into God's creative genius in that moment. He just speaks something into existence and it happens. Let there be light. Let there be fish. Let there be birds. And from the, the mind of God and the creativity of God, a universe springs into existence. But what we find out is that actually the universe has been created for God's favorite creation. And his favorite creation is people. Now, we know that for two reasons. The first is when God creates people, it's the first time power and personality come together. In other words, God doesn't just say, let there be people. He, he, he gets down in the dirt. He fashions Adam with his own hands. He breathes his own life into Adam. He fashions Eve from a rib with his own hands. He breathes life into her. He speaks to Adam and Eve. He, he tells them that he's given them control of the universe. So not only is God hands-on with their creation, but also God is speaking in relationship with them, telling them, your job is to take the universe that I've just made and to create and to fill it and to go crazy, turning it into something wonderful. You are kind of my vice regents, God says. Your authority comes from me. The universe I've made belongs to you. God has a special design for us. But more than that, when you get to Genesis chapter 2, you get this beautiful picture where God creates a special place. It's called Eden. And it is exactly where it needs to be for human flourishing. The Bible tells us it's at the intersection of four rivers, meaning it's really fertile ground. It's the, it's the perfect place to live if you are in an agrarian society. I mean, me personally, I like air conditioning, but... They didn't have that then. So you live at the intersection of four rivers. It's full of trees. It's a paradise. It's an it's a, it's a environment that is curated for human flourishing. But then something amazing happens. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Now, I got to tell you something here. The English translation doesn't do you any favors. The verbs took and put are not personal. In fact, they're impersonal. When I think of taking and putting, I think of loading the dishwasher every night. When I take a dish out of the sink and I put it in the dishwasher, there's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing personal about it. There's not even anything gentle about it. I just kind of toss it in there. And so the, if you're not careful, the way you read this is God takes Adam and Eve and, and he kind of chucks them into the garden the way I would chuck a plate into the dishwasher. But that's not what the Hebrew says. In fact, John Salehammer, who, who has passed away but is one of my favorite Hebrew scholars, says this, an actual better translation of the Hebrew verbs would not be that God took and put Adam in the garden, but rather he took and rested him in the garden. Now that's different, isn't it? When you take something and you rest it, that's entirely different. That's not dishwasher language. That, that conjures up in your mind, bringing home that newborn for the first time. You take him or her and you rest them in the crib that you have had ready for them with the perfect bedspread and right under the cute little mobile that you got in the room with their name on the wall. Everything is ready. You've been waiting and dreaming of the moment you would take them and you would rest them in the environment that is perfect for them. This is the 16-year-old on the first day of their first car. 
When they slide into the driver's seat and they snuggle in and they say words that they don't mean and won't keep like, I'll never eat or drink in this car. (laughs) Because in that moment, it feels like they've been waiting their entire lives to rest in this perfect environment for them. That's the language God takes Adam and he he says, Adam, I've been waiting for this. I've been preparing for this. I've been looking forward to this. And he rests Adam in the garden. Then the, the text goes on to say, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And again, Salehammer's so helpful here. He says, that's a terrible translation into English. Again, if you take someone and put them somewhere to work and keep, that sounds awful. That's like your first day when HR takes you and puts you in your cubicle to work and keep doing more work. That is not what the writer of Genesis is describing. Instead, a much better translation of these Hebrew verbs would be that God takes Adam and he rests him in the garden and he puts him there, Salehammer says, to worship and obey. That the language here is God saying, I've made a special place for you. And that special place for you is an environment where you will flourish. And that's what I want for you, Adam. I want you to flourish. And as you flourish, you will praise me as the designer of your flourishing. Don't you see, Adam? I've created an environment where my glory and your good, your good and my glory are the same. I want you to see that that's the context in which the command comes. That's the background of God's command. And the reason why I say that is I have to tell you something. Uh, Let me just brag for a second. I, I really feel like I crushed parenting little kids. It wasn't that hard. Mostly it's because my wife did the hard stuff. My job was when I came home, if my, one of my kids had a bad day, I just picked them up, I body slammed them on the couch, I tickled them, I sat on them, we laughed, perfect, dad, done. <laughs> Little kids were fun, they were easy. I am struggling at parenting teenagers. And, and it isn't my teenagers, they're great. It's not their fault. They're just doing what teenagers do. I'm the one that has to adjust. I'm the one that has to change. And I've realized that parenting teenagers is hard in part. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me. It hooks into my insecurity. Because they'll say things like, like, do you even care about me? Don't you want me to have friends, Dad? Do you want me to be happy? I don't think you do. And in those moments, the reason why those words are so crushing is because there's no context for them. I mean, if you're a parent, you get this. When they say, don't you want me to be happy? You think, what about the last 15 years has made you think the answer to that is no. What is the context of this? But let me tell you, if that's offensive to a parent of teenagers, can you imagine how much more offensive it is to the God who gave us a universe? You see, when God gives a command to Adam and Eve, the context of that is, I've just made a universe. I've given it to you. I've created a special place for you. I rested you in that special place. The only thing I've asked you is is, is to pursue your own good and then turn that into worship. We have a relationship. We walk and we talk. The context of God's commands is that we should lean into them, not away from them. I have to ask you a question because there's this deep abiding belief in our culture and in each one of us that God is out to limit us. That God is out to inhibit us. 
That his commands are designed to wither, to, to, to subtract, to, to lead us to half the life we might have lived. Let me ask you, where does that come from? Because the context the Bible tells us of the authority of God is that he's very much for us, not against us. Pursuing our good, not our bad. But see, here's the second part of the rhythm. The, the, the writer is telling us that the context that Adam and Eve were in, the context that they had, should have led them to clarity. So, you know, you realize there's two ways of reading God's command. God says, don't eat from this tree or you will die. That's the negative version. You would read it that way if what you have in mind is that he's out to limit you. The reason why the writer puts it that way is it's foreshadowing. They, they are going to eat from the tree and they are going to die. But another way of reading this command would be that God creates an entire universe, galaxies, gives it to Adam and Eve, and then says, listen, here's the thing. If you just don't eat from this one tree, you will live. Do you see that? It's the same command. It's the same command. If you eat from this tree, you're going to die. The, the implication is if you don't eat from this tree, you've got a universe. Just don't eat from this tree. If you don't eat from this tree, you will live. You see, God is saying to them, this is what I want for you, life. I want you to live. And the way you get there, and Pastor Joe said this so well last week, the way you get there is by tr trusting me. Friends, listen to me. What if you've been looking at God's commands all wrong? What if you've been hearing them this way? Don't do this or you're going to die. You can't have this. You shouldn't go there. Don't do this. What if on the backside of those same commands is a God whose desire for you is that you would live, that you would flourish? What if he's not telling you to stay away from what will make you happy? What if he's telling you to chase what will actually get the job done? You see, the, the Bible is telling us that in a world in which we are free in some ways to go chasing our own authority, we are listening to all the wrong voices. Who told us God was out to hurt us? Who told us listening to God would lead to less life, not more life? That's not the context that we've been given. That is not the clarity that that context should provide. Listen, this is why I can sit in a restaurant and everybody think I'm an idiot. The waitress looking at me like I'm crazy and I'm looking at my app because the app tells me if I eat a certain way by June 6th, I will be healthier than any of you. <laughs> and I'm competitive. So you look at me and you go, Zach, be free, man. Be free. Eat what you want to eat. And I'm saying I will be free on June 6th, free to look down on all of you. Because <laughs> it's easy for me to give that app authority if it can take me where I want to go. But friends, that's what God can do. And I know what you're thinking. I know you're saying, well, yeah, sure. If I were Adam and Eve and, and God had made this perfect paradise and he had rested me in it and he had walked with me and talked with me. I mean, if I had that context and God said, don't eat from this tree, I would have built a fence around the tree, a fortress around the tree. I never even would have gone close to that tree. If I had had what they had, but I don't have what they have, how do I know that God is for me? Well, that's my third point. What is the resume we have of God's authority. What is the resume we have of God's authority? Because after all, that's the question. 
There's a theologian I love named Francis Schaeffer, and he said, he said it this way. He said, the tree is not the point. God could have said, don't jump over this river. Don't climb over this rock. Don't. He could have said anything. It wasn't about the tree. It was about trusting God. But that's the rub, isn't it? How do we know we can trust God? We don't have what Adam and Eve had. You're right, we don't. We have something better. I don't mean in terms of quality because Eden was perfect. I mean in terms of scope, what we have, the resume we have, the context we have that should lead us to clarity is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's interesting when God tells them in Genesis chapter 2 that if you eat from this tree, you will die. The Hebrew here is really interesting because what God literally says in the original language is that if you eat from this tree, dying you will die. He says it twice. If you eat from the tree, dying, you will die. And what's he saying? He's saying, you're not going to die right away. He says, in a sense, you're going to die, and then you will die. In other words, what God is comparing it to is a vial of poison. Just imagine I had a vial of poison here. If Pastor Joe were preaching this sermon, he probably would. Just imagine I had a vial of poison and I drank it. There would be an interlude between my drinking it and my dying. And when I drink it, I could stand up here and say, I feel fine. I feel great. No problem. Total lie. I'm doing great. And that would be true until I drop dead. And what God was telling Adam and Eve is if you try to step outside of my authority, part of you will begin to die and it will not stop until you are all the way dead. And friends, I cannot, I cannot think of a better metaphor for human existence in 2024 than dying, we will die. Listen, if you wonder why our culture is so degraded, why why the world seems so broken, why our society seems so off kilter. The answer is God told us when we replace his voice with the voice of anyone else, dying, we will die. And it's an election year. I'm telling you, if you replace God's voice with either political party, it will lead to death. They've both had their turn, by the way. If they had the answers, they'd have done it by now. Read a history book. But it is interesting that Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said this, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That sounds a lot like dying. You will die. He has in mind the snake who told the lie in Genesis 3. But then he says this, But I have come so that you might have life and life more abundantly. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I have come so that living, you might live. And how does he plan to do that? Well, Jesus came to show us that God is for us. Jesus came and lived a perfectly righteous life. A life that, by the way, indicts us. Because Jesus was born into the same broken world. He existed in the same broken social structures with a broken family. All the excuses that I blame, all the finger pointing that I do, he had at his disposal and yet he lived a perfect, righteous, sinless life. He showed me that it was possible that I'm the problem, not society. And that perfect, sinless life led him to the cross. Because he had told us all along that he had come, not just to indict us, but he had come 
to free us. And the way he did that is that on the cross, this perfect, sinless, uh, uh, righteous man becomes the embodiment of my sin and of yours. And the God, the Father, pours out his anger and his wrath and his judgment over my sin, which was rightfully mine. That anger, that wrath, that judgment, God is answering the prayers of everyone who I've ever hurt of everyone who rightfully calls out for justice on me. And Jesus is coming up under that and bearing the weight of that and dying under that so that in three days when he raises from the dead and then goes on to ascend into heaven and to be the king of heaven and decide who's in and who's out, he is saying to me, Zach, if you'll grab hold of me, if you'll trust me living, you will live. And that begs the question, If the God of the universe loves you so much that in your brokenness and in your shame and in your guilt and in mine, he didn't turn away, but he came running in Jesus. If he loves you so much that his own son would live and die in your place in order to forgive you, in order to rescue you, in order to include you, then why, oh why, wouldn't you assume that behind every one of his commands is your good? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is it. This is the rub. This is the decision. This is the moment. To be a Christian is to find in Jesus the context you need to believe that God is for you, not against you. To believe that his authority is good, not bad. And to trust him with every area of your life. Are you there? But if you're here and you're a Christian, brother or sister in Christ, hear me on this. Do you really believe that God sent his own son out of his infinite love and kindness and mercy and grace for you only to ruin you financially? To sucker you into trusting him so that he could destroy your sexuality? So that he could limit your marriage, inhibit your family? Does that make sense? No. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, and what maybe might be one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible, says, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then how will he in him not also give us all things? In other words, if God loves us that much, what can we not trust him with? Friends, his authority is for you, not against you. It's not a reason to recoil. It's a reason to lean in. He has only ever wanted life. Trust him. Let me pray for us. Father God, I love that in your Bible you even care to make this point. Because you could just say, I'm God. So when I say something's good, it's good. And when I say it's bad, it's bad. You just listen to me. And in fact, so many other religions that try to picture you, picture you that way. It's a relationship of power. It's a relationship of obligation. But out of your infinite love and kindness, who you actually are is you spent an entire book showing us, giving us context, giving us context in which we could understand your commands, showing us inescapably, unavoidably, you are for us. Ah, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.